This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Dr. Roy Barson, psychoanalytic psychology, uh, uh, just author of Core Competencies in Relational Psychoanalysis, professor at the Seattle School of Theology, and founder and director of the Postgraduate Program in Relational Psychodynamic uh, Therapy. I am your host for the today. And I have the privilege of interviewing, interviewing psychoanalysts Karen Harang, Drew Tillotson, and Nancy Winters on their edited text, Body as Psychoanalytic Object, Clinical Applications from Winnicott to Beyond and Beyond, recently published and released by Rutledge. This is a great text that Karen, Drew, and Nancy have assembled. The emphasis on the body in psychoanalytic work a neglected yet vital aspect in working psychoanalytically gets the stage this time, and deservedly so. This is not only a good read, it is an essential one. As Dr. Rice has stated, in these pages, concentration on the vulnerable, mortal body reveals what it is to be alive, breathing, present, human. So let me introduce you to these uh, wonderful co-authors of this text, uh, Karen Harang is a board-certified psychoanalyst uh, practicing here in Seattle, and um, she has been interested in the body since her early uh, training in bioenergetic analysis prior to becoming an analyst. In one of her articles, The Skin I Live In, and From Reverie to Interpretation, Transferring Thought into Action of Psychoanalysis, gives us an indication of her longtime interest in the body as part of our, our therapeutic work. Drew Tillotson, he is also a board-certified psychoanalyst practicing and teaching in um, Northern California with the um, Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern Cal. And he has a forthcoming publication uh, uh, entitled Braving the Erotic Field in the Treatment of Analysts and Children. And Nancy Winters, uh, analyst in Oregon, um, also has had a longtime interest in the body and some of her publications include The Handbook of Child and Adolescent Systems of Care, The New Community Psychology, and Review of Sexual Differences in Debate, Bodies, Desires, and Fictions. 
So please welcome with me these uh, uh, wonderful people. So uh, Nancy and Drew and Karen, I want to begin with this. First of all, I want to commend you for this recent and excellent, well-written text. And I'm particularly grateful for your contribution to the restoration of the body into psychoanalytic theory and reverie. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually interviewed Stephen Knobloch on his new text, Bodies and Social Rhythms, Navigating the Unconscious, Vulnerability and Emotional Fluidity. And so it's so exciting to see analysts bringing the body uh, uh, front and center into our work. As you mentioned in your introduction, understanding the body's role in psychic development over the lifespan has yet to be integrated into theory and practice. You go on to say your intention in writing this book was to offer a new term, body-mind, one word, to refer to the indivisibility of body and mind, recalling the language of Winnicott's psychisoma, the indwelling of the psyche in the soma. In fact, Drew, in preparing for this interview, you wanted to make it clear to our listeners the distinction between body as psychoanalytic object and not the body as psychoanalytic object. Can you, Drew, and, and Nancy, and Karen, take the uh, listeners into describing the difference between the two and how this sets up the foundation for this entire text? Well, thank you, Roy. Um, um, that's a long answer, but just to be succinct, um, I think that, um, first of all, this is a type of book that I would highly recommend reading the introduction to, because in our introduction, there's a much more explicated version of the answer to that question. Um and it gives you more of a sense of how we arrived at that, but I'm going to count on my colleagues here to fill in. Um, but what I would say just to start off is that the the title was originally The Body um, instead of Body, but throughout the process, our, uh, we went through quite a process as editors, and uh, in, in and of itself was a scholarly endeavor, I would say, as well as an editing procedure. Um, in terms of us learning, as we called together the themes of the chapters, where there were convergences. And through that process, um, during that, I would say COVID erupted, which was not anticipated when we started the book in 2018. So um, to get to the point of the question, I think what happened in an opera coup process, um, we, and upon reflection, as we went through the papers and the different sections, realized that there was, there has been in psychoanalysis more of um, the idea of the body being a separate from the mind and, and writings about that. And so the word body-mind really encompasses Winnicott's idea of psychisoma. And in fact, one of the chapters is, the first chapter by Robert Olsner is, the body. does the body have a mind? And so upon the reflection and the opera coup process of doing this, what we realized was that the body was more uh, along the lines of um, a dualism model in terms of the body um and then a mind, instead of the idea of body not separate from mind. And how we noticed in 
the chapters that through the process of editing, we noticed that there were several places where rather than, in fact, one of the central arguments in, in our book, I think what our contribution is actually, is the argument of those that say, in focusing on object relations and the object, we're losing Freud's drive theory and the drives. Whereas we are coming from the perspective of actually object contemporary object relationship does take into account the drives as well as infantile sexuality. And so it's a more holistic idea and it, and it speaks more to how the body in the mind becomes an object through various experiences, not just bodily, but also what is perceived psychically, and then in the clinical hour, intersubjectively, between the patient and the analyst. Uh, Nancy, you know, you, I think you coined this at the beginning, so why don't you say something? Yeah, um, <clears throat> thank you, Drew. I think, Drew, you've covered a lot of territory, so I really appreciate that. Um, I think that I would emphasize the après coup aspect that we were working on the book and then suddenly there was a moment of enlightenment where we realized we're not talking about something that is described by the definite article of the. Um, because I just indulged myself and looked in the dictionary for the multitudinous meanings of the. But the one that I think we can all relate to is that it's used to indicate something definite or something previously specified. We began to realize that doesn't really fit for body because body is a, an imminent, <clears throat> meaning um, close to self, <clears throat> excuse me, personal rather than transcendent kind of experience. And it's multitudinous. There's no single way to understand body. So I think we began to feel the body-mind really described better, uh, the multitudinous aspects that were covered in the book. That's a lovely, lovely discovery. Karen, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, in, in our, I agree with Drew that we really um, elaborate this in, in our introduction because it was such a significant um, pro aspect of the process of creating this book and uh, not something that was intellectually derived, but it was from reading the chapters and seeing all the different vertices or ways that the different authors relate to body hyphen mind. I use the term body mind without a hyphen, but all these differences and then it occurred to us, and we say this in the, the intro, that and we say me, not the me. And when referring to our, ourselves, and similarly, just so many different meanings related to uh, the different authors' understanding and then how they applied in the clinical situation, it was really through that the that process that the, the, this discovery uh, came. And I, I think we all agree that it's one of the things that now that the book is, is out in the world, we're very happy about that. 
um, that, that that discovery um, has legs, like it's really stayed with us as, as something significant. Yeah, no, I really, really like that. You know, years ago, I had the fortune of um, reading um, Singer, uh, and, and he was, wrote this in the 60s or something, and he used the word viscera, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that, oh, this is how I discover myself and my patient through my gut, through something uh, immediate and in my body. And my mind is never, the mind is always going to be hanging around. <laughs> but so often we find ourselves and our patients, first of all, through feeling before we feel before we think. And so the fact that you've put these two together is, is, a, is just very powerful and a, a great contribution. Um, there are six parts to this text. And so I'm wondering if the three of you could give us an overview of the text, how you chose to organize the text and why you chose the people that you chose to be um, a part of the text. Well, I, I can start, uh, this is Karen, I can start um, responding to this one. The, the book came out of a conference, an international conference that was sponsored by Northwestern Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. It's called the EBOR Conference, which stands for Evolving British Object Relations. And I, I wanted us to, to do a, a conference that was focused on the body is how it was, that was the title then. And um, in, asked Nancy and Drew, we decided to work together as the organizers of that conference. And it was through uh, the, the individual paper presentations that were uh, presented at that conference that afterwards, we there was so much energy uh, in the, the in-person experience of being together and, and hearing these different presentations that we decided, let's, uh, let's pitch this as a book to Rutledge. They were immediately responsive. And then we went through and chose what we thought was, was a, a diverse and good collection of papers from the conference, and then adding to that, decided that we also would contribute chapters. And uh, Peter Goldberg, who did present at Ebor, wrote a different paper uh, for, for the book. So that's the historical background. And it was really out of the excitement. And one thing about the conference is that at that time, I think we were one of the first in in the world to have a psychoanalytic conference, an international conference focused on on body. There was a conference in London, uh, but after ours, the European uh, Psychoanalytic Federation, they, they also focused their conference on the body, and there was another one in Canada. So it really has seemed to us that it, it has... It, taken off around the world, coming to different people, uh, different colleagues, that this is a, um, a timely topic. Uh, but I think we were amongst the first to, to do this. Karen, In terms of Mrs. Nancy, just a brief yeah. thing to intersperse is just how many submissions we received. You know, the enthusiasm was, was, was really striking. It was three times what any previous Ebor um, had, had received in terms of submissions. 
And a third of the people who came to the conference, it was about 130 people, had never been before. So that means that they came because they were really drawn to the theme. And can we, can we, this is Nancy again, can we just add, it's not directly about the book, but the scientific meetings that Karen and her colleagues, including us at her institute, have organized also have had a very large attendance. So I think it does speak to the interest in body. Yeah, what, what Nancy's talking about is that since the book has been published, at uh, NPSI, we have uh, Zoom monthly uh, scientific meetings featuring different different uh, presentations based on different chapters of the book. There are going to be there are five in, in total. And as Nancy just said, the uh, the response to that has been uh, really impressive. It's so interesting because I uh, what I hear in that is. Um, the body knows something, right? And uh, we've been splitting off for a uh, hundred years. It's something that's absolutely vital. And so when you, it's sort of like if you put erotic or sex in a, in a, in a <laughs> title of a presentation, you're going to get a lot of people and you put body there and people go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, we know something about that. And, uh, and so it's been a long time and um, good for you to all do that. Um, I wanted to, I, I think it'd be respectful and, and thoughtful to actually have you name the authors that are contributed to this text. And do one of you want to do that? Well, I was going to go over the, the sections and just, and I could do that in that, in that way. So this, the sections of the book were derived from naturally from the topics of the uh, chapter authors so part one is mind-body relations in Winnicott Beyond and Beyond. And Leslie Caldwell and Robert Olsner have chapters in, in that section. And they were plenary presenters at uh, the 2018 EBOR. Part two is Oneric Body. And uh, Judy Ekoff uh, and Jeffrey Eaton, who has a foreword to Ricky Ricard and the late Adrian Giraud's chapter. So they have chapters in uh, the section on oneric or dreaming body. Part three is nascent body in early object relations. And uh, David Brooks and, and Patty Anton have a chapter there, as does uh, Dana Blue. And part four is body and psychosensory experience. Uh, my chapter is in that section, as is Peter Goldberg's. Part five is body in breakdown. And Oscar Romero, Drew Tillotson, and Nancy Winters have uh, chapters in, in that section. And then our last section six, which has a single chapter, is body in virtual space. And that is authored by an Italian, uh, Andrea, Mars, uh, Andrea Marzi, who has written a lot on, uh, on that topic. So that's, those are the sections of the book. That's wonderful. Well, quickly, Roy, I just wanted to throw in, you asked about how we organized it. And Karen just listed the sections, but I just briefly wanted to say that part of the project at the beginning was to sit with all the chapters we thought would be good contributions but then we had to sit and think about where were places 
where did they converge in terms of themes? And so these themes actually arrived organically through looking at papers that paired well together. And uh, Rutledge had asked us to make sections, but then we had the task of trying to find that. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, yeah, and so I want to uh, focus on in the book the uh, chapters that uh, you've written. Um, and so why don't we begin, Nancy, with yours? Um, and in this chapter, autoimmunity as a response to analytic change, you begin by saying the body too is a container and subject to being overwhelmed by the forces within. It's quite astounding to me how we have neglected the body in our work because at some level we all know about carrying stress in our bodies. My neck hurts, I have a gut ache, I can't breathe right. Or even as we were trying to get set up today, my body was getting anxious because some of the technology wasn't coming together. We feel things very deeply. And in this chapter, you take us to your patient Ariel who developed an autoimmune disease to avoid the terror of change. And in her case, the fear of eros, life, desire. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about Ariel and further elaborate on this tension between the battle of the mind and of the body. Well, thank you, Roy. Um, I think the first thing that I want to say is just how what a, an interesting experience it was for me to have been researching the immune system before the pandemic and then to have the pandemic happen. And I think it was a parallel to what we all experienced with doing the book, that pandemic the onset was right in the middle, really, of our process, so it really affected our work uh, deeply. But you're you're pulling out the body as container. Um, I just have to say how stimulated I was by your question. Realize I want to write more about that. But I don't think that we think of the body or body. I'm, I see that we always go towards the as container. Um, I, I looked, you know, in the literature is really not that much specifically about that. But if you think about it, body metabolizes experiences of a breathtaking array of experiences, both inner and outer. And most of this is unknown to us. But when the body, when body is functioning, let's just say in states of health, we don't have to think about all this metabolizing you know, we call it biologically metabolism, but there's also metabolizing goes on unknown to us unconsciously. So really what I'm writing about is when that process gets disrupted, and I used a Beyond, um, his example of the, um, the stutterer, or the stammerer, as he called it, um, where the, the, the thought content is so... Um, is so fragmented and the emotional forces within the, the, the content break through. They're so powerful that they break through the containing forces of the mind. Now, I'm adding in that they also broke through the, the container of the body because we're also talking about the mouth. And here we are all today talking about our, you know, anxiety and various bodily experiences that immediately start to take center stage for us. And we try to push them into the background in order to keep functioning, but they're never in the back, really in the background. <clears throat> so um, 
you know, the, 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 there's another interesting thing to be said also that the body can be, and I think Drew, um, you know, this is going to be a cue for you and your discussion too, the body can be a negative container. So in states of illness, which could be thought about as the negative container, <clears throat> that linkages are obscured. And there's a there's a, a, a an obscuring of, of psychic development and psychic you know processing. Mm-hmm. So and how did you see that? I'm sorry. And how did you see that with Ariel? Yeah. So so with Ariel, um, I tell a story about someone who um, has early deprivation and trauma. You know, so that again is metabolized by body and um, begins in an analytic process to open up. Something new opens up, and it's, as you said, Roy, eros and desire, and the, the libido begins to open up, and then there's a reaction against, so that these, you know, I, I talk about as the life instinct, it breaks through, some kind of opposing force, let's say, to use both Freudian and Bionian language. <clears throat> and so there was an, an, an immediate onset of illness. And so my idea about that is that this really represents catastrophic change in, as Bion described it, as registered in the body, in body. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. Um, can you or one of you speak about beyonds? Because I know uh, it's kind of throughout the whole text, this idea of catastrophic change. Uh, I, I, uh, I like that a lot. I'm wondering if one of you would like to just describe that in a, a Beonian way. I, I can say something about it, and Drew may have something he wants to add as well. I think one of the things that is most uh, helpful to me in understanding that concept is that Bion was talking about an experience where in the process of something changing emotionally, that that the individual is unconsciously, momentarily unable to perceive whether the change that's occurring is catastrophic, that is, that will result in physical or emotional annihilation, or whether it is transformation in the creative, constructive, positive sense of change. And when it's not possible to discern that, that's a terrifying apex and and can only be weathered if there's a containing object uh, capable of of holding that that tension. That's that's one way that I think about it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, that's good. And Drew, let, let's uh, expand on that by talking about your chapter, Body as Enemy. Uh, yeah, Body as Enemy. 
wow, that's so interesting that I read that. And I go, oh, wait a minute. I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's my body and enemy, but that, this is what we're talking about, right? And you make an important statement that in facilitating aliveness in our patients, we're going to have to be in touch with our own. So as we're talking about catastrophic change and the container, our container, if you will, also gets disrupted in my mind. Uh, that it'd be pretty hard not to be in the presence of such a thing and not also have um, have something occurring to us. And you speak of his idea of catastrophic change. And if I have this correct, aliveness is compromised because of the cost, i.e. the feelings that will erupt through loss. What are your thoughts about this? Um, you know, I'm going to actually piggyback on Karen just to keep a thread going here. And I'll say more about that. Because my, I want to say something about the aliveness and the cost, but just to follow Karen and coming at it from a slightly different way of saying it, um, our patients, even ourselves, uh, have some narrative of who we are very often at the beginning of a treatment. Um, and part of the narrative at times can cause suffering, but it's still a narrative. It actually, identification with objects, painful object ties, are clung to, actually, because that gives a patient a sense of how they know themselves, even at the cost of pain and suffering. So um, the catastrophic change is part of what I think of it as, Karen was very eloquent in the Bionian way of saying that, but I think that the catastrophic change is you would think that someone is coming to treatment to welcome change. But it reminds me of Adam Phillips's quote, people don't come to psychoanalysis to change. They come to psychoanalysis to keep doing what they're doing, but just feel better about it. And um, it came to mind because of what I'm saying is I think change is actually very difficult. And for more primitive patients, and people from traumatic histories, even more so. And so just to come back to your question, my, my uh, chapter was really inspired by a very poignant um, experience of being with a patient with profound suffering who had an uh, autoimmune disorder, Crohn's disease, uh, but also um, had experienced the loss of his father when he was young at 12 and then later went on to develop Crohn's in his late teens, early twenties. And so my chapter really is about, and what the catastrophic change is here is for various reasons, there was a double, I used Freud's morning and melancholia, I use Winnicott's ideas about liveliness and aliveness and creativity, and I weave in catastrophic change uh, and interdigitate those to conceptualize what I felt was going on in the treatment, which is the father dies and has not been mourned, I discovered in my work. Then the once vital body of the patient who was quite athletic and strong, became severely compromised with his first bout of Crohn's and had surgery, intestinal surgery, 
And so there was the loss of the vital body. And so what I would say is that there was a deadness and a very uh, numbing sort of repetitiveness in the way he would present his thoughts. And so to loop back to the idea, the aliveness in this situation, coming alive, which we would intuitively think would be a relief and something, a change that would be welcomed, actually is a catastrophe because in this case, in my chapter, the coming alive and feeling alive both in body and mind, and body-mind, is a threat to what was held in mourning and hasn't been mourned. So not only is coming alive a process, the catastrophic change is there has to be mourning in this patient of a father and a body in order to come to a place of feeling alive. And as I was trying to say earlier, those Objectized and identificatory processes with dead objects, so to speak, are very tenacious. And it was how he knew himself to be. So actually for someone like this, coming alive is actually very disorganizing and very catastrophic and is more of a three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, 10 steps back kind of process in the analysis. So I think that, I think I've said it. I don't, uh, I think I've answered. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very clear. And sort of uh, when we break out of, um, break out or are confronted with or break out of what has been holding us together, that's absolutely terrifying. In fact, Nancy, you refer to that as somatic explosion. I'm wondering uh, if you want to sort of say yeah. a bit about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that really goes back to Dion and his example of the stammer, the way that the stammering comes out in such a disorganized, almost explosive way when there's no container. And I would want to add as well, just to Karen's really nice explanation of catastrophic change, that Dion said all learning is catastrophic. It must be catastrophic. But really, I think it's humbling to us as analysts to realize that we are really sometimes dealing with life and death as the stakes of the analytic process, and that it, it you know, it has been called dangerous. I, I don't think I would personally use that word, but what what Drew is talking about is a disequilibrium when those identificatory processes get disrupted. In my chapter, you know, I talk about the cellular level of that kind of disequilibrium and what actually happens biologically is, is such a parallel to the, the psychic version. Well, so may, uh, just a quick add-on while Nancy was speaking. I, I make the point in my chapter, but I use Howard Levine's, excuse me, Howard Levine's work um, and his idea of catastrophic change, and he makes the point that which Nancy and Karen have already made, but it's that all analytic treatments are catastrophic in terms of what I was saying earlier. And Levine makes that point. It's not just the more disturbed people and the more tra traumatized patients. It's even neurotic patients that are more high functioning. The actual process of, and here's where I think, frankly, I think psychoanalysis has so much to offer for patients with bodily illness and um, Im immune disorders is that it's a treatment um, and a way in to try to understand 
this idea of, um, of, of coming alive, not only coming alive, but learning to live with an illness, but having a space in the mind to be able to metabolize that. That's all well and good to say, but that process is catastrophic. So I, I agree with that. And I would add that something I've been thinking about um, recently um, it, it, after, after we completed the book related to, um, to Beyond's paper um, on, on arrogance is the double-edged sword of the analyst's curiosity about bodily experience, about psychical experience, that it is that that that's another facet of the catastrophe of of change is that by being interested and paying attention, close attention, which is required of the analytic process, is also felt as as uh, and our curiosity as a threat. And I think one of the reasons that this book seems to be garnering some attention and people are are really interested in these scientific meetings we're having on on the chapters is that colleagues recognize both the fruitfulness of this area, but also the danger of it and really wanting to hear how colleagues are thinking about this so as to open up in, in, in the clinical situation. There's such a, a need for more conversation about this. Well, and Karen, I want to take you to your chapter because uh, we were talking about the patient, right? And somatic explosion and uh, catastrophic change. Um, and you also just brought up uh, our curiosity, our presence, our bodies, all those can be a threat. But I think it enters us into that dialectic of a threat and a deep desire. And so part of our analytic work is, is working in that dialectic of fear and, and hope and desire and, and terror, um, which also in your chapter, um, you begin to talk about the analyst body, uh, not just the, uh, about, about the patient. And your t- uh, title of your chapter, River to Rapid, Speaking to the Body in Terms the Body Can Understand. I see you summing each of us as clinicians to listen to our bodies in order to locate deeper affect and unconscious states with our patients. And you examine Bian's concept of at-one-ment and Winnicott's idea of direct communication. I'm wondering if you can say more about that. Well, the, the title, uh, the, the subtitle, uh, Speaking to the Body in Terms the Body Can Understand, came out of a, a, a presentation that Robert, a pre-Ebor presentation that Robert Olsner gave uh, titled When the Body is a Clinical when the body is a clinical fact. And he said during that presentation, I wonder what it would mean to speak to the body in terms the body uh, can understand. And I asked him to elaborate on that. And he said, well, I haven't thought about it. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. What does that mean? And when I started to investigate the literature, what I found to, to my surprise, was that most of what has been written about the, the analyst's uh, bodily experience relative to clinical technique, uh, and it hasn't been much integrated into theory, is that the focus is on listening. How do we listen with our bodies to what's happening in the consulting room? And there, there's almost nothing 
on what what it means then to speak um, at the body to body level. So that's really what I wanted to investigate. And uh, just as a sort of vignette to sort of frame the whole chapter, I start with. Uh, uh, I just short... for just one moment because what yeah. you're going to help clarify for us is not that we just listen to our body. This is a big distinction, but how to speak at the body level to the body. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. In other words, what what does that mean? And. And the vignette that I'm going to describe that is at the the front of my chapter is with um, a a young woman, Anal Sand, who uh, came to session and in a state of of fear, but also uh, suppressed rage, refused initially to lie down on the couch and sat at quite a distance in the room with her coat, you know, buttoned up, and uh, was just in a state of of fear and and rage. And as the session proceeded, it finally occurred that she was able to express her her distrust and upset with with me, and in a way that was ex- like an explosion, the way Nancy was describing. And she was screaming at me, you know, I know you hate me and I hate you too. And as she was, was uh, expressing this without thinking, it was completely unconscious on my part. I leaned toward her physically to get, to get a little bit closer. And, and what I saw when I did that was her eyes dilated and she she looked momentarily more frightened, but then softened and began to sob. And it, 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 I won't describe the whole session, but we were, we were eventually able to, to narrate and talk about what was going on emotionally in that exchange. But it was, for me, a discovery that she, she said later on, that the most meaningful thing to her was nothing that I said, but it was when I leaned in. And that that is an example of speaking to the body, my body speaking to her body, that that was entirely um, non-lexical and way before I had even any awareness. Of, it was not a consciously intended intervention. So that would be one example of the sort of speaking to, and I have others in the in the chapter. Yeah, no, that's uh, really nice. Do um, you want to say a little bit uh, about Theon's at one moment? Uh, I've always loved that term of, of Theon's, and I think that what you just described has something to do with that ultimate tuning, if you will. Um, but go ahead. Right. Well, I want to combine it with um, with with Winnicott's idea about direct communication. Um, Winnicott talks about a, a way of a conversation going on. That's the the river in the river to rapids. That there's this constant flow of of unconscious body to body communication going on that he described as direct communication, meaning it doesn't have to go through. Uh, a, a lexical uh, or symbolic 
processing. It just is occurring and that it can be noticed and uh, is extreme. It's the, the, the basis of symbolic communication. But beyond, I thought, took it further because Winnicott says that there, that this level of direct communication for for the analysand is um, is not bidirectional. It's it's for the the analyst to pick up on what's going on, and and his theorizing is is focused on this this distinction that it's not bidirectional. Beyond takes it further with his concept of at one moment by which he meant a shared psychical experience. Uh, and that, that to my mind, he doesn't use the word bi-directional, but in that it is shared, it's going both both ways. It's not just from the, the analyst and to the analyst. Um, and that, that, I think, is a, a very compelling way of, of theoretically framing this uh, speaking to the body. Yeah, and how you nicely uh, brought, uh, demonstrated that with your case that you presented a minute ago. Lovely stuff. Um, so another question that comes to my mind in reading your text is that as we, as clinicians, analysts, engage uh, the body-mind, our bodies cannot be absent, right? Um, and when we move away from being the expert analyst of the mind to the incorporation of the body-mind, I think the work is going to shift considerably. And I would like to know from each of you, could you let us know, the listeners, the impact of this change, not theoretically now, but personally on how this project has impacted you personally and uh, as a therapist, as an analyst? Um, I, I'll take a stab at that, <laughs> and I'm sure other my colleagues will have other thoughts. I just when you ask that, uh, I think it's tempting to say how I noticed that it opened um, a, another register in my toolbox, so to speak, of working with patients, and that through the development of the book and the crafting of the sections. And the more I studied the material, I began, and working with Nancy and Karen, I have to say, was a phenomenal experience. Um, and I'm not just trying to flatter them. I'm, I mean that I think all of us went through a process. But for me, I, um, in opening another register to listen to my patients, I also began to notice my body more in treatment with them and how my body would react and states of exhaustion or sometimes a, a capacity being disrupted in trying to think and have my thoughts flow and being so disrupted by their disturbance or what was disturbing in the field between us. Uh, was quite something to start registering and, and taking into account. But I also personally, um, you know, I think, I think that the, 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 the COVID pandemic cutting in to the process we were already in, 
uh, certainly brought me much more awareness into my body and contagion and, and, and really enormous anxieties about death and survival. And I, I just have to say that I think obviously a pandemic would arouse that in me, but I was not prepared for the level of primitive kind of experience internally in my dream life in ways that I was so terrified uh, by the prospect of disease and death. And so I'm just throwing that in because I think it was the timing of our working on this that already had opened my mind to these registers of perceiving body differently than just physical. But it started to have me think more about myself in relationship to the world, in relationship to my own body, um, and parts of my uh, self that I think uh, physically uh, I'd had an experiences of in the past and made me rethink a lot of living in my own body as the way I would just summarize that. Maybe I'll go next. Um, I think I would start with the, you know, the, the profundity of the pandemic and the way I think all of us were able to think about it differently because of working on this project. And I would say more deeply in the sense of going back to Drew's comment about unconscious fantasy, the extent of the fantasies that get, you know, that get evoked by this experience. But one um, really, uh, you know, striking aspect that we've talked about in our general introduction, which I I have to agree, people should read. (laughs) I really enjoyed rereading it recently. Um, you know, is it really punctured our sense of, uh, you know, invulnerability? You know, I think previous to the pandemic, there was so much in our broader culture, you know, so much emphasis on the body as beautiful. We can, you know, even the term mind over matter. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think too many people are going to be using that term anymore. Because we know that we can be punctured by a microscopic particle. But the thing I would add to that as well is it also connects us. Because in our breathing, we exchange these little, you know, microscopic particles. And we come together in being able to sadly infect each other. But it does speak to the, you know, incredible together ishness that in, in, as what we exist. Um, so the other thing that I think leads from that for me, <clears throat> and it, you know, I would just sort of um, piggyback on some of Drew's comments too, but what I would add is just, I think I, I've realized more, you know, in the inhabiting of this register, as Drew said, of the body, that when my patients do things with their body, they're not just speaking and they're not just informing me, they're actually doing it to me. So I've been able to feel that, for example, the patient who is wringing her hands, that's not just her wringing her hands, the hand wringing becomes inside of me. There's a way that I know about it that I think is is a little bit new for me. Nice. 
Well, I want to just pick up before we hear from Karen, um, three things that words that are ringing in my mind and my body is the word inhabiting and the word puncture and that it's doing it to me. Those are, those are powerful kind of phrases that you've uh, brought to our attention. Thank you. Karen. Yeah. Well, if we think about the, the idea of a projective identification being bi-directional back and forth uh, going on all, all the time, then to, to think about it, how that's occurring in, in bodily terms, you know, as well as at the level of, of fantasy, I just find so meaningful. And I think one of the things that has changed for me as a result of this project, and I have to agree with, with Drew that it's been just such a meaningful collaboration to have, have company in, in such a, a difficult time in our, in our world and in such a meaningful way. But I have come to trust my bodily experience uh, with patients and their bodily experience in a way that makes it much easier to speak to. You know, so for example, if I, you know, some, a patient is, is speaking and I start having a, a coughing fit or my, or, you know, a- anything going on somatically, rather than, than making any effort to, to push it to the side it now more easily occurs to me, oh, this is part of the conversation and it's, an, it's significant. Even if I don't know or it takes time for that significance to, to evolve, I just trust it. And that, that really helps to kind of enlarge the, the space of working together to, to feel more trusting of that level of the analytic conversation. That's lovely. That's lovely. Well, we're getting close to the end here. And so I want to give you an opportunity to, I'll throw one question up to you. Like, what is this, what is this uh, experience felt like you t- to you today? Has it been a disembodied or embodied or I've been very much enjoyed and felt a part of your story today and part of your work and uh, very enthused about it. So if you want to comment on that, that would be also wonderful. Um, but anything that you want to leave the listeners with, um, other than to get down and into their bodies? Yeah, so how would you like to help sort of benedict our time here together today? Oh, that's so funny that you use a, a, a sort of religious term, but but maybe that does also speak to the awe, um, the, you know, really the uh, of something bigger and beyond what, what any of us can comprehend that we're, that we're tapping into. What I would hope for, the, for anyone who reads this book is not to read it in the sense of finding out, oh, here's how to think about body in psychoanalysis, but rather as, a, as an ex- reading the text as an experience and in that experience, paying the reader paying attention to her own somatic experience of reading the book and what it brings to mind about his work with patients or her work with patients as, as a springboard rather than because it's the distinction, I think, between knowing about 
and becoming. I would say, you know, following on this, what just occurred to me as Karen was talking is, I think what I would want people, what I would leave this, what I would want is, you know, the book has a lot of theory in it, but the title is Clinical Applications. And as Karen was speaking, I started just riffing about all the different clinical examples in the book and all the different clinical vignettes and the material. And I would hope that people would enter into that and not get so caught up in uh, the argument between body or is it mind, is it body-mind, and more actually learn from the clinical vignettes because they think they're so rich and interesting. And certainly my chapter is a very challenging, I would say difficult case with a lovely human being, fortunately. But I think it's the tussle with um, the material and the vignettes and how people will respond to that that could be very useful to them just in terms of how to piggyback on what Karen said, experiencing the book rather than trying to study it and understand. Um, Great advice. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah. And so I just, to add to the eloquent comments of my co-editors, first I want to add my own appreciation. You know, what a, a wonderful experience it's been to work with the two of you and the learning, you know, that, that we did together and continue to do, I think I might add. But I'd like to read our um, the dedication because I think it speaks to what we really believe about the book um, and about what we hope will come to mind to be evoked in the reading. So we dedicated to our patients whose embodied lives inspired us to explore body in its limitless capacity to speak, dream, desire, and grieve. And I, I think I want to, you know, just highlight the grieving because I think that there's a lot in this book that can help us with what we're all going through today. You know, that we do have some grieving to do. And there is a question of whether we can be unified enough in our body-mind, you know, to, to go inward and to be able to do that kind of grieving that we need to do all together. And I think it's clear to me that it does have to be together. It's not going to be an individual process. Well, to introduce another religious term, amen. <laughs> 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 Very excellent. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to uh, be with you and to interview today. And I'm so pleased you've done this book and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Too, Roy. Thank you Roy. I just throw in quickly to your question just a few minutes ago. I'm really moved by how, you, how closely you attended to this conversation and what you mm -hmm. knew from it that was spontaneous and helpful in terms mm -hmm. of thinking. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a real privilege. Here, here. Right. You bet. Thank you. Mm -hmm.